So hear now the word of the Lord. A ruler questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you, you, you still lack. So all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. The disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And then he came near. He questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all people saw it, they gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me add a good morning to you as well. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and before we jump into that text, let me pray for us. Father, I'm struck both by the rich young ruler and the disciples who heard what Jesus said, completely didn't understand, and didn't even try to understand. Um, and that can be us. We, we hear a scripture, we have a question, but we just go back to life. And so don't let us go back to life. Let us hear from our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, what you see is never just what you see. Uh, so take this photo, for example. If you're from Indiana, like I am from Indiana, and a Colts fan, what you see in this photo is one of the most amazing plays in NFL history. The Colts are staging this incredible comeback against the Kansas City Chiefs, and they fumble the ball right on the goal line, only to have the ball miraculously go right into the hands of Andrew Luck, who have no, there's no one standing between him and the end zone. 
and he dives in for a touchdown. Completely ridiculous and unfair, but ultimately a sign of God's favor and justice towards his favorite state in the United States, Indiana. If, however, you are a Chiefs fan, you see this photo as a sign of history of grave injustice against the Chiefs. An injustice so great that this moment was finally the culmination where God said, okay, no more. I will finally right this incredible wrong done against you. And a couple of years later, God finally made it right. So no more complaining, right? No more whining. Y'all have a good 15 years in front of you. So what, what you see is never just what you see. Our brains immediately read a story into the images and experiences we have, an interpretation, which informs our response. And the story that our brain reads onto what we see will either show us what's true or blind us to it. And there are a lot of things to see in the world right now. What are you seeing? More importantly, when you look at Jesus, when you hear that account read of him, what do you see in him? There are three characters in this story, in this account. There's the rich young ruler, there is the disciples, and there's a blind man, only one of whom will actually see Jesus for who he is. And so I just want to ask two questions this morning. One, what is it that blinds us to seeing Jesus for who he is? What is it that blinds us to Jesus? And then two, what will actually give us eyes to see him? So what will blind us and what will give us eyes? First, what will blind us to Jesus? Now, the first character in this story, the rich young ruler, it's really hard to overstate how impressive he would have been to the people who were surrounding Jesus as this moment is happening. That if in that day you were to list the attributes of who is God's favorite person, this guy had all of the boxes checked. First, he was a ruler. He was politically important. And we don't precisely know what type of ruler he was, but whatever his job was, he had been given authority. And people in that day thought if you had been given authority by God, you were representative of God, you were chosen by God, you were important. Secondly, he was a man of high integrity. Now, there's some debate here when the guy says, listen, I've kept all the commandments from my youth. There's some people who say, well, that's a sign of his arrogance and his self-righteousness. I don't think that's fair because Jesus doesn't say, basically, actually, dude, you're really self-righteous. You don't do any of those things. You're a big-time sinner. Go home and repent. Right? That, that's not what Jesus says. He actually, he receives what the guy says and almost, I think, affirms it. Yes, you are a man of integrity, but you're still lacking one thing. So he's a ruler. He's a man of high, he's actually a good ruler. He's a man of high integrity. And thirdly, he's rich. And people in that day thought if you had lots of material resources, that was a sign of special favor from God on you. And so when, when this guy walks up to Jesus, everyone would have assumed he's really, he's really special, he's really important, and God loves him. And if anyone is going to heaven, it's this guy. And yet, even though everyone would have said this man is the best human beings have to offer before God... He should be completely fulfilled, completely full of joy, com uh, the best life you could have. This guy does not feel that way. He's missing something, and he knows it, which is why this man of incredible political, uh, you know, social importance is going to Jesus to say, I'm missing something. What is it? 
And he, I think he's missing something that's really described well in uh, a recent New York Times article called The Busy Trap. Uh, in the article, the author writes, Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against ippiness. Obviously, your life cannot be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. I can't help but wonder whether all this histrionic exhaustion isn't a way of covering up the fact that most of what we do doesn't matter. He's rich. He can afford anything. He's powerful. He can, he can do anything. But all of that isn't producing meaning in his life. Teacher, what still do I lack? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And his, his approach to Jesus uh, makes clear what he thinks of Jesus, which is he calls Jesus a good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think that's how most people approach Jesus. Even most people outside the, the, the church, people who are non-Christians, would say Jesus is a, per, a person of great moral integrity. We should listen to his teachings and advice. It's, it's important. And I think that's Unfortunately, how many in the church approach Jesus as well. He's only a good teacher. We might name his, him as Savior, but ultimately his teachings are suggestions. His commands are advice to be considered, but ultimately we have to live in the real world. So this man approaches Jesus as a good teacher, and Jesus tells the man something that's ultimately very devastating to him and to us who read this story when Jesus says to him, okay, this is what you, this is what you have to do. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. There's actually two things Jesus tells him to do. We, only, we get hung up on the first one, which is pretty big. First thing he has to do is sell everything that he owns and give it to the poor. Then, second, is to come and follow Jesus. Now, I have good news and I have bad news about this teaching. The good news is Jesus does not say this to everyone he encounters. Which means this is not a requirement of discipleship to Jesus to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And so some Christian interpreters of this passage make wealth necessarily evil. And you must get rid of it and get away from it because if you don't, then you can't go into heaven. So that's the good news is Jesus doesn't say that to everyone he encounters, which means it's not a requirement of discipleship for every Christian to sell all that you have and give to the poor. That's the good news, not the bad news. Because a lot of Christians stop there with that interpretation of this passage. But Jesus does make a comment about wealth. And he says this, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So the good news is that uh, those of us in here who, if you know, look at the grand scheme of world history, we are extraordinarily wealthy to the rest of the world in our own day, but also through the, throughout world history. The good news is we don't have to sell it all to, become, to be Christians. The bad news is all that we have makes it incredibly difficult for us to enter the kingdom of God. It's a great hindrance. Why does Jesus say that? And I want to say two things about wealth, um, why I think Jesus says this. First is that wealth can cover the emptiness of life without God. And think about the, the number of ways we have to be distracted from our unhappiness, from our discontent in life, right? If, if, if this world is not giving us what we want, rather than look to God, we can take a vacation. We can binge Netflix. We can order good takeout. We can go on a weekend getaway. We can have hours of television. We have a Chiefs playoff game. We have so many ways to be distracted. And I just want to share how shallow I am on this front. 
So last, uh, a week ago Wednesday, some big things happened in our country. And Thursday, we decided to have a, a prayer event as a church in a way, as a way to respond to that. And the, the tension was very clear. Um, very little unity, lots of tension. And as we, uh, so we finished the prayer event, I go home, and uh, Indiana basketball was playing Wisconsin that evening. Uh, now, Indiana basketball used to be very good. Uh, when Bob Knight was there, they won all the time, and it was an awesome distraction. The problem is they're not good anymore. They're like, they're like mediocre, like just mediocre enough to be like, they might be really good again. Um, and there's games from time to time when it's like, they're actually going to break through and be good again. And Wisconsin was one of those games. They were ranked top 10 in the country. Indiana was winning most of the game on the road, and they end up losing in double overtime to number eight, Wisconsin. But here's, here's my shallowness. When they were winning, like all of the tension of the last two days was like, man, like, We'll get through this, guys. Like, we're going to, God is good. We're, like, my faith was high. My life was, was intense. Like, things are good. And then Indiana, in the first overtime, has a, a possession to, uh, to win the game, and they just turn the ball over. It was a joke of a possession. And at that point, my, my high degree of faith and confidence in God and his sovereignty in the universe went below zero. And I'm like, this is, this is all going to fall apart. The, the universe will not make it through this moment because of a basketball game. Because of my, like my own chosen distraction to get me away from the problems of this world. And we all have those. And the wealthier you are, the more distractions you can have them. It could be as shallow as Indiana basketball, where the signs that they are not good are abundantly clear and have been for years. And yet I keep going back to that well. Or whatever your distraction is, the wealthier you are, the more distractions you have. To seek those things instead of seeking God in prayer. Instead of seeking God in fasting and longing. Instead of going to Jesus and saying, Lord, speak. It's good teacher, what advice do you have for me today? The wealth can distract us to the emptiness of life and distract us to the, the importance and the power of who God is. That's first. But secondly, wealth can blind us to the reality of who Jesus is. So when Jesus goes to this man and says, good teacher, Jesus responds by saying something that I think is important. Um, in that he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I, I don't think that's just like, you know, you could, sometimes when you ask teachers questions, they just give you like teacher-like responses that are really annoying. I think that's actually Jesus, actually, he's not being annoying. He's actually saying something informative. That he's saying to this man, listen, you've come to me as a good teacher. I want to be very clear. I am not a good teacher. There's only one person who is God. There's only, God is alone good. You should only be seeking him for advice. And that's me. And why I think that's clear, uh, it's Jesus, why he's actually making a claim to divinity in this moment, is because then he tells the guy, I have the authority to tell you to go sell all your possessions and then come follow me. In other words, Jesus is confronting this man and saying, listen, I'm not interested in being your good teacher. I'll be your authority for life. I'll be your God, but I will not be your good teacher. Only God is good. And when Jesus tells the man to sell all that he has, I don't, I don't think Jesus is offering like a moral, moral advice or moral instruction. If you're really wealthy, you need to sell all that you have and give it away. I think what he's doing is he's speaking as this man's creator, this man's God, who knows this man inside and out, speaking into his life, knowing there's one thing that's going to perpetually keep this man away from God, and it's his wealth. Or as uh, Pastor Charles Bond of Mount Pleasant Church here in Kansas City recently said in a conversation, when Jesus does not have our attention, he will often disturb the thing that does. 
Jesus is this man's God and creator, knows what has his attention, and so Jesus is disturbing it. You're living for your wealth. So sell it all. Give it up, and then come and follow me. So in your own heart, your own life, what are you paying attention to right now? What is Jesus disturbing in your life right now? Or probably the bigger question, because ultimately this is true of the rich young ruler, is Jesus actually allowed to disturb you? Or is Jesus just a good teacher? Your life is not consumed with practicing his teachings, listening to his voice. There are other voices that consume your attention, that direct your heart, and give you teachings that you follow. Is Jesus allowed to disturb you, and especially your vision of wealth, because wealth is one of the primary things in the Bible, throughout the whole of the scriptures, wealth is one of the primary things that blinds you to the vision of God for your heart. So what blinds us from Jesus? Wealth, for one. That's sort of the first account that Luke has in this sort of trio of accounts. The second account is about the disciples. Uh, Now, one thing we have to understand about the, the account with Jesus and the disciples here. Um, is in this day, Jerusalem, everyone had expectations about who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And that was given, uh, that was because of the, the surrounding uh, culture, what was happening. That Rome was an occupying force in their land. And Rome, uh, they were immoral, they were uh, oppressors, they were unjust. All of this is true. They were not good people leading Jerusalem at this time. And so when you read the Bible and you see God's incredible care for his people to be free, to worship him, to love him without foreign oppressors, that's a major theme in all of the Hebrew Bible, in the, the prophets, in the Old Testament. And so uh, we should not be surprised that most of the people in this day thought that when the Messiah came, his primary order of business would have been to defeat Rome militarily and throw them out of Jerusalem and to set up a kingdom of God in Jerusalem where God's people could reign and worship freely. So everyone knew that this is what the Messiah would do. So it's into that context Jesus says this. Uh, For the Son of Man, which is a a stand-in for, this is a a messianic-type word from Jesus. This is what the Messiah is going to do, what I'm going to do as Messiah. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. So they do not grasp what Jesus says. So the question becomes, well, what has blinded them? And the answer is their politics. They were so committed to their own understanding of the politics of the Messiah that they understood, which is that Rome had to be attacked. Rome had to be thrown out of power. They could not hear what the actual Messiah said about his actual intentions with Rome. And I I want to defend the disciples, actually, because, again, if you had read the Bible, this should have been the expectation. But when Jesus begins to say, that is not what's going to happen yet, actually, there's another plan. There's another path forward. They literally could not grasp what he said. And in no moment do you see the disciples actually pushing in, like, hey, like, uh, hold on. What about, like, all the prophecies about the Messiah and the kingdom of God reigning and justice and all, like, you losing, you dying doesn't seem like a fulfillment of those prophecies. There's nev- that never happens because they're so convinced of their rightness, they never think to ask the question. 
And I, again, I can't blame the disciples for this, for being totally unable to see this for two reasons. One is that Jesus' politics are not our politics. And the politics of this world ultimately, um, and the disciples are living into this a little bit, but the politics of this world is to find my enemy and destroy them. And that's how social media followings are created. Who can post the best two-minute video with the headline, watch this person destroy this other person's question? Right? To find my enemy, to destroy them. Jesus' politic is to love my enemy and to die for them. A Justin Martyr, a Christian who lived in the second century, who was killed for his faith, wrote a lengthy book called The First Apology, and in that he explained why the church was growing so rapidly. And it, a part of it was his claim to say, stop persecuting us to the Roman Empire. But he also wanted to explain, this is why people find Christianity so attractive. And here's what he wrote. And he's speaking to actually the emperor of Rome, but to a non-Christian. Many who were once on your side have turned from the ways of violence and tyranny, overcome by observing the consistent lives of their Christian neighbors, or noting, I love this phrase, the strange patience of injured acquaintances or experiencing the way they did business with them. Here, Justin Martyr is saying two things. Uh, first, one of the reasons why people were converted to the way of Jesus is because Christians had a strange patience to them. Because, uh, strange patience of injured acquaintances. And here's what he's saying. Christians were treated terribly by Roman citizens. Oftentimes, you, uh, if you became a Christian, you would lose your job. You would get mocked. You would get shamed. You'd get, I mean, basically, you could read the list of Jesus. That's how Christians were treated. Mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged. They were killed at times. And Justin Martyr says, our response to those, those uh, assaults is strange patience. And then the second thing he says, they're experiencing the way they did business with them. And, and what Justin Martyr goes on to detail is Christians in that day oftentimes would get cheated in contracts, would be lied to in terms of financial dealings, and they would not respond with lawsuits. They would take the injury. And they saw that as a key witness to their faith, that money did not drive their passion. And it's like, take advantage of us. We're okay with that. Which we're like, well, that's naive. People shouldn't live like that. And they shouldn't, <laughs> unless you follow Jesus, because that's how he lived. And over time, that led to the conversion of Rome. Because the, the concern of Christians in that day was not their own safety, their own security, but the witness of Jesus Christ to, to one another and to the world around them. So I don't blame the disciples for not understanding what Jesus said and just being like, what a weird guy, let's just move on from that, that saying. Because no one wants to have a, a politic that's, that's defined by, I'm going to love my enemies to the point of suffering and dying and suffering insult and suffering financial loss to love them and convince them of the way of Jesus. And the other reason I don't believe uh, the disciples for totally missing this is who would expect salvation to come through crucifixion? The irony, of course, is that this, this thing that Jesus says, which is so disappointing to the disciples that they can't even understand it, is this is the very way he will save them. This teaching we don't like, which is love your enemies and die for them, is actually the very means by which salvation was won for you. His cross, his enemy love, was for me and it was for you. Because apart from that cross, you and I are enemies of God. Jesus' enemy love ethic was not about Rome, just about Rome. It was also about you and me. And Paul makes this very clear in Romans 5.10 when he says, 
For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul makes clear, outside of the cross, you and I are enemies to God. Jesus' politic, his ethic of love my enemies and die for them, is the very means by which you and I are saved. And how powerful is this passage with the disciples? That the, the reason Jesus was shamed and put on a cross was because of their sin and our sin, our enemy status with God. And they can't even see it because they are so wrapped up in their own politics. They cannot grasp what Jesus said because they are committed to a vision Jesus is not committed to. And their politics meant that when they're staring at Jesus, they could not see him for who he was. They could not see the salvation he was offering them. And they could not see, I do not operate the way the world operates. My ethic is not to find my enemies to destroy them. It is to love my enemies and to suffer and to die for them. And so the, all this means the people who should have most understood Jesus, his own disciples and the rich young ruler, did not understand him, could not see him for who he was. And the primary two reasons were money and politics. The two things that if you talk about, you're guaranteed to have problems. And I really hope your response is, you know what, man, you're right. And I can think of all kinds of people that need to hear this sermon right now. The way they use their money, because they're rich, they're rich, and they, man, they're just not doing it. And the politics, man, just, no, 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 no. The, the questions we need to meditate on this morning, all of us individually, is, number one, is my wealth blinding me to Jesus? Am I living a life of distraction and luxury and pleasure? And actually, I'm not even at the point of the rich young ruler yet, feeling this deep sense of discontent in life, that this world is not as it should be. Is my wealth binding me to Jesus first? And secondly, the other question we all need to meditate on, not for other people, but for our own hearts and themselves, is are the politics of this world blinding me to Jesus? So those are two questions to meditate on. And let Jesus disrupt you. Let them get in there and meddle with your budget, with your politics, and let him shine light in places that are often very uncomfortable for us to shine light on. So that's, that's first. What will blind us to Jesus? Well, it's, they're not, it's not surprising. It's money and politics. But secondly, uh, what then will give us eyes to see Jesus? And this account uh, should immediately remind us of last week's story, which is Jesus and the babies. And uh, the babies were not important, and yet uh, Jesus took them, took them in and spent time with them. And here we get a very similar moment, which is a blind man who, uh, in that society, a blind uh, people would have been very poor, unable to provide for themselves, would have considered, you know, sort of the worthless part of society. And so this blind man, he's sitting by the roadside, he's begging, he hears a crowd going by, he finds out it's Jesus. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Very much the same thing that happened last week. Hey, man, you're blind. You're not important. This is Jesus. He's very important. Be quiet. And I loved the, I loved the blind man's response. And you probably need to, you need to underline this. Right? And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. He knew something about Jesus no one else in this entire account knew about Jesus. Which is that your status, your position, whoever you are in, uh, in the world's eyes is irrelevant to Jesus, the son of David. Which the son of David is a political title. That's a kingly title. David was a king. 
And there was a promise that one day David would have a son, a king who would reign forever. That was to be the Messiah. So this blind man approaches Jesus not as a good teacher, not as a, uh, someone to, to co-opt into his political vision, but he calls him one of the most uh, intimate terms for king or authority you could in the Jewish language, which is son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. So what will give us eyes to see Jesus? To not be blind to him, but actually to see him. And I want to name three things for us this morning to think about. One is you have to confront your condition. The one enabled the blind man to see Jesus uh, when the disciples and the rich young ruler couldn't. And ultimately the answer is his blindness, his need, his destitution. The rich young ruler came to Jesus because he thought Jesus was a good teacher who would have good advice. Jesus then gave him advice he didn't like, so he didn't keep it. He just did his own thing. The disciples are following Jesus because they believe he's the Messiah, and they are right. But when Jesus' politics are different than their own, they don't listen. Eventually at the cross, they will abandon Jesus in his, his moment of both need, most important need because they don't believe that what he's doing is right. They don't, they're ashamed of him. And even though he's saying, I love you guys so much to death, or so much, I'm going to love you to death. I'm going to suffer a brutal death to bring salvation to you. They don't understand it. So they, the rich young ruler approaches Jesus as a good man who needs some better advice. The disciples approach Jesus as, uh, so, as people who need a king for their own political agenda. And the blind man approaches Jesus as a helpless man who needs saved. So how are you approaching Jesus? As a helpless sinner, as someone who needs an addition to your vision for life, who uh, needs some good advice about how to live, or are you approaching Jesus in this, this method of the son, or of this blind man who goes to Jesus out of complete need and destitution, ignoring all other voices who are telling, them, telling him to be quiet, <laughs> just saying, son of David, have mercy on me. So what, you have to confront your condition. Christians are saved not because we are morally superior to people, not because we have the right information, not because we believe the right things. We are saved solely on our capacity to acknowledge our helplessness and destitution and need before the son of David. Anything less is not Christian. Anything more is not Christian. Confront your condition one. Secondly, cry out all the more. And that's the line, that's been my line this week. Cry out all the more. Right? The other thing I love about this, this blind man is everyone's like, leave Jesus alone. And he's like, I'm going to keep bothering Jesus until I experience his power. And how many of us pray like that? Right? How many of us respond to our own need, our own turmoil, crying out all the more? And this is, I think, a part of why I spoke to uh, what I spoke to about wealth, is we all have other sources of hope. Our wealth, our access to whatever we want keeps us from crying out all the more. And it's why I think the poor often, the ones who were socially rejected, are the ones who most strongly responded to Jesus because they recognized they didn't have another out. And John Tyson, a pastor in his book, Beautiful Resistance, writes about this, speaking to how our wealth and our, uh, um, our many off opportunities of pleasure in our own American context Keep us from the power of God. He actually names food in particular with this. And this quote has been has stuck with me. He writes, Comfort can blind us to the powerlessness we have compared with the purposes and promises of God. It can create an insatiable appetite for the flesh in the world. 
We settle for so much less than God has for us. I remember once asking a believer in the persecuted church what he thought of the American church. His response has stuck with me for years. So much food, so little power. This blind man will settle for nothing less than the mercy and the power of the son of David. He doesn't have a backup plan. He's not approaching Jesus for good advice. He's not approaching Jesus to affirm his agenda. He's approaching Jesus with nothing and refusing to leave until Jesus responds to him. So we, we gotta confront our condition. We have to cry out all the more. And thirdly and finally, we need the mercy of the son of David. That ultimately, when I ask the question, what will give us eyes to see Jesus as he truly is? Ultimately, like we cannot open our own eyes to see Jesus as he truly is. That is the work of Jesus. That is grace. We cannot save ourselves. And in this moment of incredible turmoil, as we think about just the disruption in our culture, to just to ask the question, what's the one thing the church has that no one else has? Right, like there are many different communities in our broader culture that, are, that can, I think, offer good things to hopefully move us to a place of unity and healing and reconciliation. But what do we have as a church that no one else has? And the answer is grace. And I don't mean like a shallow, like, oh, we're kind of we're nice to people. That, no, I mean grace. I mean the grace I talked about with the early church where they said, go ahead, abuse us, take advantage of us. You can do what you want to us. We are going to keep witnessing to the way of Jesus and keep loving our enemies. That's the type of grace I'm talking about. And the reason, if you are a Christian, the reason you are a Christian is not because you figured it out when no one else could. It's not because you, have, you see the truth and no one else is. It's not because something in you and your own qualities. No, it's because the son of David had mercy on you. The son of David had mercy on me, because the son of David loved his enemies and was willing to embrace being mocked and shamed and crucified by the most powerful political institution of the day, the, emperor, the empire of Rome, only to be raised from the death three days later to accomplish salvation for us. And that should mean the church is the one community with no sense of moral superiority, no sense of harsh judgment towards the world around them, no sense of condescension, because the only reason we have the mercy of God is because he was merciful to us. Because we cried out all the more. Because we did not have the resources ourselves. Because there is no sense that we are the right people and everyone else are the wrong people. But actually, we are the wrong people and God saved us anyway. That's the message of the church. And the one thing we have to contribute to our culture. And so this morning, if you are, able, if you are blind to Jesus, if you don't feel like you're living in the power of God, if the power of God doesn't feel present or active in your life, then we have good news, which is that he is here this morning, and his mercy will never be dependent on how good you are, how smart you are, that you believe the right things, that you live in the right way. All you have to do is cry out all the more, and he will open your eyes. See, what was hidden from the disciples, what they could not understand in that moment, when Jesus told them, I'm going to be delivered, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be shamed, I'm going to be spit upon, I'm going to be killed. And on the third day rise, what they could not understand in that moment, what they could not grasp, that has been revealed to us. Right? That has been revealed to us by the resurrection of Jesus, vindicating his suffering at the hands of Rome, 
the power of God is in his son Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus is so powerful, is so, um, there are no limits to his capacity, that when you read through the Gospels, the most interesting thing to me is that Jesus never said no to anyone who asked him for mercy. But not everyone asked him for mercy. So are we. Let's pray. Father God, we, we have so many things that can blind or numb our hearts to the Lordship, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of David, Jesus. And any, for those of us who follow Jesus, we don't want anything to blind us to him. We want to follow him faithfully. We want to pursue him um, wholeheartedly. But that's really hard. That's really difficult. And so in this moment, as your gathered church, with your word open before you, with the son of David, his life, just, just opening it to Luke 18, we need your spirit to come into our hearts and invade those places we're trying to keep off limits, where we're trying to prevent Jesus' meddling work, disruptive work to us. God, not so that we can be better people and be, be more righteous, not just for that, but God, so that we could actually fully receive the mercy and healing and power of God. Help us to do that, we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.